Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Iraqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Iraqi Voices is a podcast that showcases Iraqi perspectives and insights about current developments in our country. Iraqi Voices is produced by 1001 Iraqi Thoughts. On October 10, 2021, Iraqis went to the polls for the sixth time since 2003 to vote in parliamentary elections. 51 days later, the Independent High Electoral Commission, known as IHAC, finalized the results. And nearly a month later, the Federal Supreme Court ratified the results on December 27th. And the first parliamentary session was held on January 9, 2022. With a new parliament and Iraq's political class in the midst of the government formation process, today we are joined by Hamza Haddad a political and economic analyst and the former advisor to the president of the Trade Bank of Iraq. Welcome, Hamza. Thanks for having me on here. The government formation process in Iraq is a complicated and drawn-out affair, oftentimes taking months until the designation of a prime minister and the swearing-in of a cabinet. For many, it can be quite confusing to follow. You wrote an extensive report about it for the Conrad Adenauer Foundation, covering the government formation process since 2005. Can you give us a general overview of it and explain why it is not a straightforward process? It's not a straightforward process because Iraq is politically divided. We've yet to see a political bloc or party win a majority of seats in parliament. And so negotiations are required to form a coalition government. And to complicate things further, there's the informal power sharing agreement known as Mohasasla that determines who's eligible for certain positions of power. Now, the voter turnout in the 2021 elections, as reported by IHAC, was about 43%. Compared to previous elections, this is the lowest turnout yet, reflecting public apathy and distance from the electoral process. Despite this, in your paper, you mentioned that elections are nevertheless relevant in Iraq. Can you explain why? Well, it's important not to conflate participation or popularity with relevance. If you're asking if these elections are accurate reflection of the Iraqi people, then I'm going to say no because the participation is too low. But are they relevant for political future of the country? Then yes, they are. Uh, and this is why you see there is a lot of debates amongst the new political parties, whether to participate in these elections or not. If they weren't important and the only avenue that they see to bring about change, we wouldn't have seen such a deep discussion amongst them. And that's why when I spoke with uh, candidates from new parties like Imtidad, they actually revealed a lot of frustration to me about trying to convince many of the boycotters to vote for them. And so what we're also seeing is not only are the political elite or the entrenched parties divided, but the newcomers are divided as well. If you can explain divided how or divided along which lines. So there was a clear division of which parties want to participate in the elections and which decided to boycott. So it wasn't just Imtidad, for example, that was born out of the Tichrin protest movement, but they were the prominent ones that decided to take part in elections. You also had others that came together with the intention of, of running in elections, but after uh, facing violence, many decided to, to withdraw and boycott. This makes sense. Now, do you think those divisions were carried into the first session that we saw take place on the 9th of January? 
I asked because there was a lot that went on and supposedly some scuffles. Would you be able to tell us what happened during that session and how you think the events will impact the government formation process this time around? What you are able to see is that the political parties born out of Tishreen, they're not in unison. They're not just one group. They're, they're multiple groups, and some are trying to vie for representation of the protest movement. And you saw this quite clearly when the Imtidad members of parliament rode to parliament in tuk-tuks. Um, a lot of people called them out saying this is cheap politics, but in reality, they're forgetting that they're trying to champion the protest movement and claim the right to it at the same time. Makes sense. I don't think the symbolism was lost on uh, on too many people, but uh, we'll be see if they'll be able to continue to hold that reform and revolutionary mantle. Um, so we'll see how that goes. So we saw the arrival of the Imtidad members of parliament in tuk-tuks, and then the first session started. What happened during that first parliamentary session, and how do you think these events will impact the government formation process this time? Well, I was surprised about the first session that they were able to actually convene and elect a speaker and two deputies, as required by the Constitution. Unlike in the past where we've seen the first session, quote-unquote, is held open. Um, but after that's been done a few times, the, the Supreme Court did deem that as unconstitutional. So it was nice to see things uh, played by the rules. Having said that, it's also a bit depressing seeing that Parliament's new leadership looks almost identical to the previous one, where mass protests demanded early elections to bring about change, and we're seeing the same parties lead those positions. That's a very interesting point, circling back to the protests that demanded change. Based on your information, did the Imtidad October protest representatives vote for Halbusi and his deputies, or were they the votes that abstained or voted for their competitors? If you look at the, the elections of the Speaker of Parliament and then the Deputy Speaker um, and Second Deputy, they seem to, to fall in line with the, about that amount of MPs that do not want to take part in voting for the entrenched political parties. Um, and that's most, uh, we can kind of see that with the set Deputy Speaker, we had Sirwa Abdul Wahid from the New Generation Movement from the Kurdistan region. They're in an alliance with Imtidad Party. And when she ran as Deputy Speaker, she only won about 30 seats, similar to the 20 to 30 that did not vote for Halbusi. So you can make a, an estimated guess or assumption that they were, but because it was a secret ballot, you'll not know. One of the themes in the current government formation process that your paper alludes to is the, quote, re-sectarianization of the electoral system and the entrenchment of Mohassasa at a time when the public has strongly rejected it, end quote. The term re-sectarianization suggests that Iraq's polity has moved away from sectarianism and is now reverting to it. Has it indeed done so? And why do you think it is returning to it? I believe we started to see the political elite moving away from it, or some of them, in the previous elections, where you saw uh, politicians move beyond ethnicity and sectarian lines and run together, most notably the Nasr coalition 
that ran in all 18 provinces that had Sunnis, Kurds, and Shia running together. Um, before that, we started seeing political parties break off and not run in one big umbrella for the sake of sharing an identity, but to starting to break off because they supposedly have different political ideology. But unfortunately, in the, in the most recent election, other than the likes of Imtidad movement, we started seeing everyone return back to sectarian and ethnic lines. And that's for two, for two, two reasons. The first one is we saw in 2018, those that tried to move beyond ethnic and sectarian lines, like Khadid Ubaidi, the former Minister of Defense, uh, he won the most seats in Nainawa. He won the second most seats in Iraq. And, and when it came time to choosing a speaker of parliament, he lost out to Muhammad al-Halbusi. And one of the reasons was at the same time, Abadi, who from Nasr was trying to run for prime minister, and they didn't want to give two of the three presidencies to one block. And at the same time, it wasn't clear that giving it to Ubaidi, who didn't run with a purely Sunni party, as being falling under the Muhasasa system. So that discouraged a lot from doing that. So when it came to 2021, Ubaidi ran with uh, Khanjar's Azam, for example. Uh, the other aspect that's contributed to resectarianization that's not exactly at the elite level was the changing of Iraq's electoral districts from 18 based on the provinces to 83. Uh, and that presents a problem in diverse provinces like Kirkuk, Nainawa, Diyal, and Baghdad. Because the last time you had a credible sense was in 1957. And so some people started to interpret these elections as a pseudo-census. They might not like or agree with the candidate they share an identity with, but will not want an election results to reveal they, they may be of the smaller group in a particular district. And so these two, these two things contributed to resectarianizing politics. Very interesting. Another interesting theme that you point out in your paper is the move from elected non-compromise candidates to unelected compromise candidates. Can you explain what this means and how does this trend affect the political process and in general, the development of Iraq's democracy? Thank you for asking this, as this was a big motivator behind writing my report. Because a lot of people are always asking which individual will be prime minister. And the more important question is what kind of prime minister will we have? As individuals, you could say Mustafa Al-Kadhimi and Adil Abdel Mahdi are two very different, but their premierships were very similar. And that's because they both were compromised individuals who had no political backing in parliament. And so when they came to power, they ran a weak government and both didn't run in the elections either. While the constitution does not require the prime minister to be chosen from elected members of parliament, this still hurts Iraq's democracy because it's coming at a time where the public is demanding to elect the commander in chief. You're seeing a lot of times where people are calling for a presidential system and what that ultimately means is they want to directly elect the commander-in-chief. Instead of heeding those calls, Iraq's political elite have moved in the opposite direction. And not only are they choosing compromised candidates from the electoral winners, like Abadi in 2014, but they're choosing people like Adil Abdel Mahdi or Mustafa Al-Kadhimi, who didn't even run in the elections. And so when they come to office, they're running a weak government because they have no support in the legislative branch. So Hamza, what does it say about our situation that, as you said, that the political elite are moving in the opposite direction of what the people are calling for? 
it's it's a big issue that's going to reappear because they're going in the opposite direction because it allows them to choose a candidate that's uh, disposed of easily and they can be free of accountability, which is what they're afraid of and what the people are asking for. So we're going to reach a point in time where this is going to be a contentious issue. The last uh, mass protests were able to get uh, smaller districts, they were able to get earlier elections, but there were still bigger demands like the one we're speaking of now. The the other important point I want to go back to is you said these candidates that end up taking the position of prime minister and commander-in-chief end up having no political bloc in parliament pushing through their agendas and supporting them. What hope does that mean we have for any real reforms in terms of the economy, in terms of political reforms, in terms of potentially constitutional reforms for the upcoming government. Exactly. There's there's little hope for this. So not only would we have more accountability by having a more democratic process in place and choosing the leaders, but you would have a stronger person in office that's able to push for the much-needed reforms that Iraqis are, are calling for. Thank you. Now, Muqtada Sadr has been adamant that unlike previous governments, we will not see a national consensus government, but rather a majority in opposition. As of right now, what are the chances of this happening? If it does happen, do you think it has the capacity to be effective? Well, we first have to point out that he's adamant because this is the first time he's won the most seats by a significant amount. He was not calling for this back in 2018 when he had only six more seats than Fatah, or in previous elections when his party wasn't anywhere near the top. So I think that's important to, to keep that in mind. And so he's been adamant to show that he's won. And now that it's come time to form a government, he's calling for a majority, but it looks very much like previous governments, which is muhasasa, but with less participants. So if the first parliamentary election is any indicator, you know, you're still getting your a Sunni candidate as the Speaker of Parliament, you're still going to get a Kurdish candidate as president, and you're still going to get a Shia candidate as prime minister. And yet the whole point of calling for a majority government was to move away from muhasasa, and that hasn't changed. The second point for calling for a majority government is to have an opposition in place. Post-2003, Iraq has not seen an opposition in parliament. The political parties share the spoils amongst themselves and as a result have entrenched themselves within the state that goes beyond the members of parliament. And so you pose an extreme risk of violence when you try to sideline one over the other. And it's very difficult to ask those being sidelined to miss out on up to four years of state capture. I, I agree completely. Now, by looking back at the government formation process since 2005, what can you tell us has stayed the same and what has changed? And more importantly, what does this mean for the future of Iraq's politics? Well, what has stayed the same is that Muhasasa remains in place, which is not good for, for Iraq. In both, in both terms of, of governance and giving what the people, what they want. You know, they've, we've seen large calls to remove Mahasasa and that's still there. 
Um, what has changed is that we're seeing the political elite not even bother running in elections unless they want to be Speaker of Parliament. Most are very comfortable uh, with running things from, from the top and especially when you have positions like the President Prime Minister attainable without having to run in elections, it does not incentivize many to run in elections anymore. And that's not good for Iraqi democracy. So what has stayed the same has not been good and what has changed has not been good either. But the one hope that I can see in the, is in the political newcomers, the ones that were brave enough to challenge the entrenched elites and run in elections and put their lives on the line ultimately. I think what, what they've done up until now is very commendable. Um, but what happens next as an opposition, regardless of how small they are, if they're able to implement change from, from that position, I think we can see some positive future for Anati politics. Hamza Haddad, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. We hope that the people of Iraq can start having truly representative and responsible governance that leads to improved services given the tremendous sacrifices that they have made to voice their frustrations and displeasure with the political class. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Araki Voices. Until next time, take care. <laughs>